So, chapter 5, it's, we've been going through 1 John, and we've been looking at each of the chapters, and today we're looking at chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, it would be good to open it, because I'm going to actually go through a bit like a study, looking at the different verses, and seeing what this um, says to us. It's interesting that um, today is going to be a message of encouragement. It's going to be a message that's going to really remind us of all the things that God has given us and we, it will help to give us assurance. Isn't it good to feel confident? You know, it's terrible when you feel insecure or lack confidence and you sort of, that makes you feel a bit nervous and even sometimes a bit anxious. But in this letter today, um, John's final, he's bringing it to a conclusion and he's actually encouraging us and he's assuring us that we don't have to worry, that we don't have to be you know, afraid something is going to happen. It's all taken care of. And he is assuring us that it's all good. And so don't you like that sort of message? That's a great message, isn't it? And this is the message we have this morning. And I believe God wants you to, to be encouraged this morning by this message. He wants you to feel assured as you go out of this place, absolutely confident Because God wants us to be confident, not in who we are, but in who he is. And he is great. He is amazing. And so John ends this letter on a triumphant note. And he talks about what our living faith accomplishes. What our living faith accomplishes. Now here, living faith means that to me it's active it's, it's happening. It's not something that sort of like was a decision we made a long time ago and now that's it and we just move on. Living faith means it's alive today. And if it is, then this is what it will accomplish. There's four things that we're going to see that it accomplishes. And in the fourth one, we're going to look at some assurances that we, are, we have. And, and John concludes this to say, you can know, you can know without a doubt. So the first thing that our living faith accomplishes is this. Our living faith overcomes the world. Let's look at 1 John 5 verses 4 and 5. For every child of God defeats this evil world. Another translation says overcomes this evil world. And we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now throughout the Bible, Christians or followers of Christ have been referred to by different names. They're called Christians, which means Christ ones or Christ in us. Sometimes they're called disciples. They're people who learn about Jesus, learners, disciples. Uh, Sometimes they're called saints, people who are set apart for God, believers, beloved, children of God. But here, John is telling us there's a a name for Christians, and that is they are overcomers. A Christian is one who overcomes. I was just talking to um, Brad just a minute ago, and it's the very word he used. He says, yeah, but we can overcome those problems. That's exactly true. That's that's the truth. We are overcomers. And it's not just in John that we're referred to as overcomers. In Revelation, it says, they overcame him, that's the enemy, because of the blood of the lamb 
And because of the word of their testimony, they were overcomers because of Jesus and by speaking out the truth. Paul says in Romans, but we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's great. Overwhelmingly conquer. That's overcoming. Again in Corinthians, he says, thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're on the winning side. We already have the victory. We are overcomers. And so this is something that we need to call ourselves. We are overcomers. The enemy doesn't want us to think that. But if we identify that who we are and call ourselves overcomers, then we are going to see God outwork that in our lives. So when you think about overcoming, then obviously there's something you've got to overcome. You've got there's an obstacle or a problem. So what is this problem? What is this obstacle that we have to overcome? Well, John tells us, he says, what you've over, got to overcome, the problem we have is the world. That's the problem. Now think about the world. Well, we think about, you know, earth and we think about, but what is the world? What is John, when he says you've got to overcome the world, what is that? Well, let me tell you a few things that it is. The world is Satan and his opposition, his plans. That's one thing we have to overcome, Satan and his plans. He's got some plans that will take us down. And so we need to overcome that. We need to overcome sin and its pressure. Sin and, the, and temptation puts a lot of pressure on us. We need to overcome suffering and its pain. We need to overcome sensuality and its pleasure. This is the world. This is what the world is. It's Satan and it's sin and it's suffering and it's sensuality. It's anything, in fact, that is in opposition to God. That's what the world is. Anything that is in opposition to God. And John says, and he repeats it, he doesn't just say it once, he says it in verse 4 and 5, you can overcome the world. Can we overcome all of that? Satan, sin, suffering, sensuality, anything that's in opposition to God, that seems pretty big to me. But he says, yes, you are a Christian. You are an overcomer. You overcome all of that. It's the promise of God for us. And so you think, all right, well, how? And he goes on to tell us, he goes on to say, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Now, we all live life in faith. I mean, if you go to the doctors and the doctor prescribes you um, something to take, then you go to the pharmacist and you have the script filled. You're trusting the doctor that he's writing the right script. You're trusting the pharmacist. They're putting the right things in the medication. And you take it and you, have, you, you just exercise faith daily. We get into a plane. We, we trust the plane's going to hold us up and that the pilot will do the right thing. All day we are exercising faith. But that's not the faith that John's talking about here. That's just a general faith. He's talking here about a very specific faith. He says, he who overcomes the world is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the faith that will overcome the world. If we believe that Jesus 
is the Son of God. Now, of course, that means that we believe that what he did for us when he died on the cross as the Son of God and took all of our sin once and for all so that it could be dealt with, we believe that. We believe that he rose from the dead and in rising from the dead, he conquered sin and death once and for all. We believe that. And then we not only believe it, but we allow God to apply it to our life. So if he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death, then that means, and brought life back to Jesus, then that means that he can, in our life, conquer the things, the problems that we have, the world, and he can bring life. That's what believing Jesus is the Son of God means. That's a living faith. It's active. It's acting on what you know. Believing that what Jesus said, what Jesus did, is true and it applies to my life today. And so if he rises to life, then he can bring life into my life. And so those things where the enemy wants to destroy me and make me feel like there's no hope, those things the enemy will, sorry, Jesus will speak into and he will defeat, he will overcome and he will bring life. Living faith in Jesus is the key to overcoming the world. So that's a great thing, isn't it, to be able to know that we, we, we are overcomers. Not we might be or we, we hope to be, but we are through living faith in Jesus. What else? The second thing, what else does living faith accomplish in our lives? What Living faith gives us eternal life. Look at verses 11 to 13. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now listen to this. Whoever has the Son, whoever has the Son, has life. Whoever does not have God's Son, does not have life. It's pretty clear, isn't it? I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. God doesn't want, to set, want us to settle for, uh, I hope so, salvation. I hope that this is going to all work out. He's saying here that you can have real assurance that you will have eternal life when you Put your living faith in Christ. He wants us to know that we can have confident assurance that when we rise to life in Christ, it is not just for this earth, it is for ever. It is for eternity. And you know, you need to have that assurance. If you lack that, then life is going to be difficult. You're going to struggle to believe that you can overcome. You're going to struggle to worry about tomorrow because if you don't trust that God has promised eternal life then you're going to worry about what could it mean what could tomorrow bring and you know in this book of John he uses the word no k-n-o-w 40 times because what he's trying to say is I want you to know not like wonder about or hope but know 100% assurance, 40 times he's saying, you can know, you can know, you can know. 
because he wants us to be assured. He wants us to be confident. He doesn't want us to worry and to be afraid of what the future holds. He wants us to trust him, not just for today, but for eternity. And so living faith, what it does for us is that it gives us assurance that we have eternal life. The third thing that living faith does is that if we go to verses 14 and 15, it enables us to pray. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. There's, and we know he hears us. And because he hears us, we know he will give us what we ask for. How's your living faith going in that arena? John is actually reminding us of something that Jesus said, and he records it in John's Gospel, in chapter 14, verse 13. It says, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, I guess you imagine if I came to you and said, I'm giving you a credit card. Well, everyone's a bit nervous about credit cards. But I said, and I'm saying to you, in this credit card, you can, there's no limit. And you don't have to make any repayments. You can just use it whenever you like. Now, you'd probably be a bit sceptical and probably doubt that that would be true. But if you actually, you know, did receive that, the thing about that would be that the card would be worthless if you didn't spend anything, wouldn't it? The card would be worthless unless you used it to, to, buy, to spend something. And this is the same with God. It's like this. He's saying to you, listen to what he's saying. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. And in John... 14, 13, again, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He's actually given us a ledger that says, you can spend whatever you want. You don't have to pay me back. But I can, if you're like me, immediately in my mind you think, oh, that's impossible. That couldn't, like God's not going to do all of that. He's not going to do everything I ask for. Even if it's just to bring glory to him, I, I, I doubt that that's true. And you know that, that voice that's saying that's impossible, that couldn't be true. Where's that coming from? It's not the voice of God. It's the enemy. He's whispering into our mind, Lies. He's whispering into our mind doubts so that we will not take a hold of what God has promised us. And so straight away we step back from it and we actually don't apply our living faith. We don't trust God to be who he says he is. The good, good father who loves us. Think about yourself. When you love someone, think about how you feel, what you want to do. Think about your own thoughts and actions. Why would God the Father be any different who loves us perfectly? 
But we step back from these promises. We actually don't apply them in our lives because we're sort of thinking, no, I I don't think that could be true. And you think, I've tried asking for God for something, but it didn't happen. We've got to see that God always answers our prayers. It may not always be exactly how we want, but he does answer them and it will be the best for us. And so we've got to, we've got to put aside the voice of the enemy. We've got to silence that voice. We've got to let faith build in us and trust God for what he's saying. And you know, it doesn't matter if you've... This, is, this promise is whether you've been a Christian one day or 30 years. This promise is for you. And this is what living faith will accomplish, is that we will be able to pray and see God do things that are above and beyond what we imagine, because that's what God is like. If we're not seeing that, we've got to then step back and say, what do we think God's like? And who are we trusting? So the fourth thing that living faith does, and this is the final one, and in this one I've got five things that I want to share with you that are really assurances for us. It gives us confidence to face our eternal future. Now, the fact is, is that our life on this earth is limited. And we don't like to think about that. I don't particularly like to think about that, but that's true. There, there, you know, it's, it's finite. It's going to come to an end. What's going to happen then? Well, here John is giving us some assurance about our future. Now, it's interesting, when you... Um, take out insurance, you try to take out something that will cover you in case something goes wrong, don't you? If you take out travel insurance, you're trying to, you know, if something goes wrong while you're traveling, that you're not going to lose a lot of money. But when you start reading all the, um, you know, the, the small, the fine print, you start to see, gee, you know, this is not 100% coverage. There's, you know, there's some things here they could just easily get me on. And sure enough, they do. And insurance companies, what they want to do is they want you to pay the money. But then when it comes to them paying you, they're looking for a loophole if they can find it. And so when we take out insurance, we're not always confident that we're going to get 100% coverage. I was reading about a man who received a letter from his insurance company and um, and informed him to seek coverage elsewhere because he'd had one too many speeding tickets and an accident in the same year. And then he was thinking, he was actually an author, and he was thinking about what Christianity would be like if our relationship with God was like insurance coverage. He creatively imagined getting a letter from the agent at the Pearly Gates Underwriting Division that said, Dear Mr Smith... I'm writing in response to this morning's request for forgiveness. I'm sorry to inform you that you have exceeded your quota of transgressions for the year. (laughs) Our records show that since employing our services, you have erred seven times in the area of greed, and your prayer life is substandard when compared to others of like age and circumstance. Further review reveals that your understanding of doctrine is in the lower 20th percentile. And you have excessive tendencies to gossip. Because of your sins, you are now considered a high-risk candidate for heavenly assurance. You understand that grace has its limits. The Lord sends his regrets and kindest regards and hopes that you will find some other form of coverage as soon as possible. 
Sincerely, Pearly Gates Insurance. Well, how would you feel about that? A bit nervous, as we all do when we take out some insurances. But John knows that the Christian life is nothing like that. Nothing like that. So in these closing comments of his letter, he intentionally attempts to remove all doubts from our hearts and minds as believers. He wants to assure us 100%, no, you can trust this 100%. There's no loopholes. There's no out. And so look at verses 18 to 20. Here in these verses, he summarizes several critical issues all over again. I think you should underline this phrase in your Bible if you have a real Bible. I mean, you know, not a real Bible, like a Bible you can write on, sorry. Uh, what do you call it? A, a, a soft copy? Physical Bible, thank you. So if you have a physical Bible, underline this because, he, you know, God wants you to know this. He wants you to know and John's emphasizing this. Look at verse 18. We know, underline we know. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. Verse 19, we know, again, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. We know that he is the Son of God, that he is the living Christ. Over and over again, so that we may know, it says. keeps going, we know, we know, we know, we know. And so these knows are assurances for us. And so I just want to quickly go through five assurances that we have, all right? Not going to take long, but I want this because it will encourage us to realize how confident we can be in our walk with Jesus. The first one, verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. I've got a minute. Let's read that again. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Saying, Pam, that's reassuring. No one who is born of God sins. I sin. I know I sin. And I probably, the older I get, the more conscious of how sinful I am. So how can that be assuring? How can we have confidence about our eternal future if it's saying that no one who is born of God sins? We all sin, I think. I do anyway. No wonder people feel, you know, sometimes live in fear. They think, well, I sin, so what does that mean for me? Well, where it, you know, and they become afraid, but because they sin, that, that does that mean that they've sinned and now they're out, cut out of heaven? Some people believe that. They think the moment they sin, that if God came back the next minute, they, they're out. But that's nothing like what, what, that's nothing at all like what it is. I want you to hear this. It's not like that God's saying you've maxed your sin quota and you're out. What he's saying is no one who has been transformed by the new birth goes on living in an unbroken pattern of sin. In other words, it's a new pattern. Before we just sin, wouldn't care about it. Sin, go on. 
But once we're born of God, yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we sin. But what happens is when we sin, we realize that we've sinned and we confess to God and God forgives us. And we sin and we confess. There's a new pattern in our lives. And God forgives us and he will forgive us. How many times? He told the disciples 70 times 7. And that was just to say like ongoing. And that just doesn't mean it's a license to sin. But what it means that he understands us. And he says to us that there's a new pattern in your life. Now if you do sin, then you, you immediately want to f- ask for, conf- you want to confess and have it forgiven. In other words, now when we sin, it's with, it, we regret it. It's not something that we're proud of or we like, but rather we're sorry that we've sinned. And we want to seek God and live a holy life. We're, we're no longer desiring to live that way. We might make a mistake, but God will forgive us. And we come to him and immediately the, the sin troubles us. And we want to seek forgiveness and be right with God. And so that's what John's saying here. He's saying, you know, no one who is born of God, if you know God, then no longer do you want to just go on sinning without caring or thinking about it and doing the wrong thing too bad. No longer do you have an attitude like that. Now you really, you see God and you, you see how great he is. He's a good, good father and he loves me. And so when I do the wrong thing, I'm sorry that I disappointed him. I'm sorry that I let him down and I come to him. And he understands me and he understands my heart and he forgives me. And we go on. That's the assurance we have that he loves us and he forgives us. And there's no limit. Hear this, everybody. There's no limit to his grace. Do you hear that? No limit. I want you, if you go out of today hearing nothing more than what I've said, it's that. There's no limit to the grace of God. He loves you. He's a good, good father. And he loves you. The second assurance we have is that we know that as believers we are guarded by Jesus. So in the second half of verse 18, he says... God's son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. Another version says uh, that God's son keeps, keeps the believer and the evil one does not touch him. That word keeps, when you go back to the Greek, is philasso and it means to guard, to guard. And so what he's saying is God stands guard for us. It's like he's a sentry at his post. And he uses the the present tense. He said he keeps us, he guards us, he holds us. It means that he never goes off duty. He's always there. He's always guarding. He's always protecting. So nothing can happen to us without it passing through Jesus first. And he's already won the victory. And he's stronger. He has defeated the enemy. So he stands guard. And we have the greatest victor standing guard for us. And so we can have assurance. We don't have to worry that we're going to be overcome by him because he stands guard. Jesus Christ stands guard for us. And he will do so till the end of time. We are under his care. The third assurance... 
we know that the world is gripped by the devil. We know that we are children of God, so we know that we're in his God's family, we're safe. But the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Now it's interesting here, the world thinks it's free. It thinks the, belie- the unbeliever thinks that he's got total freedom to do whatever he wants. But let me tell you, in reality, he's being seduced by the enemy who has a grip on the unbeliever, not just to hold him safe, but to crush him. That's where the world is, in the grip of the enemy. And here John is telling us the world is under control, under the control of the enemy. But the translation of under the control is interesting. It's been translated in our Bibles is under the control. But the actual translation means lies in the lap of the evil one. Now you think about a child who lies in the lap of their parent, it's sort of a safe place, isn't it? They're not expecting anything to go wrong, any harm to come to them when they lie in the lap of their parent. And so the world lies in the lap of the evil one. They're unsuspecting. They're not expecting anything to go wrong. They feel actually secure, but it's a, not, it's a false security because Satan strokes them and encourages them and says, they're there, everything's just fine. I was reading about a family who went on holidays in Colorado. They're in a national park. And uh, they, they went out and uh, they didn't live far from this place. And they, uh, it's just absolutely beautiful. And they got out and they had a picnic. It spread the blanket, had the picnic, looking out over this amazing scenery. It was just, they just were having the best day. And, um, you know, at the end, what... Dads do, they love to take a photo, so it gets the family on the blanket, sets up the tripod and, you know, gets the, gets the photo and everyone has to, you know, the timed exposure. He runs back and they all smile and the photo's taken and they pack up and go home. A few weeks later, they got back the film developed, or they got the film developed and they got it back and they were nearly sick because when they looked at this particular photo... In the tree, not 10 feet above them, was a mountain lion, which they were totally unaware of. And they're there smiling and having this wonderful photo, and there above them, 10 feet in the branch, was a mountain lion. They were totally unaware of the danger they were in. And that's what it's like for the world. The world is unaware that the enemy... It says he he prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's around and he wants to get a hold of people. That's why we have a responsibility. People who know Jesus have a responsibility to be light so that we expose the enemy in the dark places. So that people have time to move their picnic blanket And accept the offer of safety. And if we don't do that, then how will they know? So we know that that's what's happening. We know that we are children of God and we're safe from that. We're protected from that. But we have a responsibility to bring light into dark places. 
The fourth assurance we can have is that Jesus has opened the eyes of believers. In this uh, verse 20 at the the, uh, beginning, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding. John Newton, who was uh, saved, wrote in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. This is what he's talking about here. It wasn't the fact that he was physically blind and now he can see physically. It's talking about that, that, God, that God opens our eyes to truth. And where we were blinded to it, now we can see what it is. Now we can live in fellowship with God because of Jesus, because of what he's done for us. But here John is telling us only Jesus, only Jesus can open our eyes to truth. And apart from him, you won't believe it. You won't buy it because we're so sceptical. So we need Jesus to help us to believe. We will stay blinded in unbelief, reclining in the lap of the enemy if we don't allow Jesus to open our eyes to truth. The enemy, the enemy will just say, there now, it doesn't matter. But it matters. And we need to make sure that we seek him. And he assures us that when we seek him, he will show us truth. He will open our eyes to truth. And finally, the fifth assurance. We can know that Jesus Christ is the source of eternal life. So when you have Christ, you have life. Eternally, forever. You will live, not just have life, you will not live forever, you will live with God forever. Isn't that fantastic? We live with him forever. We're not, we don't only know who God is. We're in the grip of his hand and he holds us with love and with mercy and grace. He loves us. John's saying, this good, good father who gave his only son so that we could have life, he loves you and he wants you to know To know, to know, to know that he is good. That he is always with us. That he guards us. That he protects us. That he will give us life forevermore. What a great encouragement. What a great reminder of truth. And we can stand in that truth this morning. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to wonder. We can know 100%. And it's interesting, the last verse finishes John's gospel. So, dear children, this is God. He loves us. We're his children. So he's saying, my dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. He's a good, good father and he loves us and he knows there's things that can come in and crowd him out. But he's saying, keep away from that. And then you can walk in confidence and you can walk in assurance every day. You can be in a place that, where you know that you are loved and you never have to worry. You never have to doubt. You never have to fear there's a mountain lion there because... He's covering you. He's protecting you. 
you are safe. You are secure. You are loved. You are forgiven. His grace covers everything forever. Let's stand and declare he's a good, good father. He loves us. We are his.